Well, I have a question for you. Uh, if you were here last week, it might make sense. Did you have a hummingbird week? I mean, or did you think hummingbird thoughts? Did you um, dwell on sweet things, or did you maybe dwell on dead things like vultures? If you're clueless right now, it's because we started a series last week called It's All in Our Head, and it was partially based on this idea of this devotion that I do almost every day called, or that just says, one of the things it says is expect temptations, distractions, and attacks, because you are in a constant spiritual war for control of what you think, say, and do. Satan is out to defeat us, but the battle is in our mind up here. So if you're a worrier, or if you compare yourself with others, or if you can't seem to kick something, get over something, or you just have dreadful thoughts, then you're in the right place. This is a good series for us. Over half of us last week took the challenge that we called the Hummingbird Challenge. It was a little bit of a gimmick, but we decided sometimes we need gimmicks in our lives. So for 21 days, even if we have a negative thought, we weren't going to dwell there, and instead we were going to direct, and we are going to direct our minds towards things that are what Philippians 4, 8 says, noble and pure and true and right and lovely, anything that's excellent or admirable, those are the things that we are going to dwell on. And so I would love to hear from you on what God does over the next 21 days, um, how he ends up speaking to you in the midst of this, how um, he works in this, uh, anything that's difficult. And, and you know, God can speak to you as easily or as, as difficult as he speaks to me. And so if you have something encouraging, I encourage you to share it. You can put it on our Facebook page. You can email it to me. You can uh, write it on a card and drop it in um, the giving tower thing if you want. So that would be a chance for you to participate in what we're doing. We ended last week with this invitation to pretend to be Jesus, to put on the mind of Christ. It's a C.S. Lewis quote. And in, in Philippians 2.5, it says, in our relationships with one another, we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we should put on the mind of Christ. And I would love to know if that worked for people to think like Jesus. And so what we did was we set up a video camera, a hidden camera, um, at the coffee cart to see how people did at putting on the mind of Christ. So you're going to take a look and see how our lovely restoration clan did at thinking God and hummingbird thoughts. It's just been a really long week. We just, the kids been grouchy and it's been busy and we're trying to get reacclimated for right. him being back. And then on the way into church today, he drops a DVD player, which thankfully at least it works because otherwise the kids wouldn't be sitting here watching the DVD player. So that's good, but I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's been a long week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. 
Oh my gosh, that coffee is so hot. Who makes coffee that hot? Coffee is hot. Well, maybe we need to put some ice in it. You can't. There's no ice. Quick trip and spin as they were sold out. Sorry. No ice. Okay. Bye. Can I have some lemonade, please? Can I have some lemonade, please? Bagels. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, church doesn't start for another couple hours and the bagels aren't here yet. Coffee's way too cold. Did you put ice cubes in this? I might have been exaggerating a little. We may have set some of that up, but just want to confess, be honest. You know, God's word says how we can have the mind of Christ. In Philippians 2, 3, and 4, it says that we <clears throat> should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value one another above ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Except I think the coffee cart scene didn't really have to be all that gimmicked or all that set up, because I think a lot of us naturally focus on our needs. They f and we focus on our, our wants and we kind of focus on ourselves. We forget that maybe somebody else is maybe having a bad day or maybe having a rough week or, or maybe something has gone terribly wrong in their life. And so we just forget to, to take that moment to stop and to sense what else is going on. And, and I think we're just human when we do that. doesn't mean it's okay. I think we're human though when we have those thoughts. There was a guy who captured this in uh, about 25 years ago, his name was Robert Ringer. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He wrote a book called Looking Out for Number One. As you might imagine, it was a bestseller for over a year on the New York Times bestseller list. And here's the premise of the book. He says, looking out for number one is the conscious, rational effort to spend as much time as possible doing those things which bring you the greatest pleasure and less time which doing things which cause you pain. Robert Ringer wants to teach people to win. He wants to teach people to be successful by focusing on their own wants and ambitions and interests and by thinking of themselves more than someone else. And it was on the bestseller list for over a year. So, uh, is that true? You'd get this book if you want to win in life. I think a lot of us do want to win in life, let's just be honest. If you ask someone, you know, what do you, wanna, what do you hope to accomplish in your life? Do most people go, you know, I'd love to be average. Uh, if I could just not mess anything up, but not do anything spectacular... 
you know, no, I don't want any awards. I don't want any, I don't want to make any, I don't want to find a cure for cancer. I just, you know, I'd like to be average. I think a lot of us want to be successful. But what does being successful mean? And for some of us, it means we win. And, And when we can't win, what we'd like to do is watch other people win as long as they're not beating us, right? We like to watch the Super Bowl and see two teams clash to win. We like to watch the Stanley Cup and uh, watch people win. We, we, I mean, some of us even watch spelling bees late at night, and we would see a six-year-old get like five rounds in, and we're like, wow, they won. Because they're successful people. And if we just think about it for a moment, what does our culture say is people who are winners, people who are heroes, even people who, who, you know, if we were really honest, might achieve like a godlike status. What does our culture say? They're, they're successful people, right? If you're an Avengers fan, you can relate to this. Like, we, we kind of think that um, heroes or successful people or people who've achieved a godlike status are, are we'll, we'll just go fantasy fiction, we'll put them in spandex and we'll put them on a movie screen and then they'll be heroes, or, or we go more realistic and we look at music stars who've beaten the odds and made it. Um, or we look at movie stars who've become successful or sports stars or even business stars. These people who have exploited their opponent's weaknesses or they've capitalized on every available opportunity to them and they've achieved something and we hold them up. Malcolm Gladwell totally figured this out in this book, Outliers. He researched stories of success and he found out like successful people were born at the right time in the right place with the right circumstances and the right resources and then they capitalized on it. And he goes through this really fascinating um, story of just one, Bill Gates, maybe you've heard of him, you know, founded Microsoft, like techno revolution. He was born at the right time. He was born in Seattle. He lived in Seattle. His parents happened to be very wealthy. He went to a private school. The private school just happened to buy like a super advanced computer in 1968 when most colleges didn't have super advanced computers. And he just happened to spend hours and hours on that computer. And then he happened to be biking distance from the college. So after he ran out of his hours at this computer terminal, he'd go to the college and spend time at that computer terminal. And by the time he was about 21 years old or 19 years old, he'd spent over 10,000 hours programming computers and we hold it up and we say that's success that's what our culture does except we're going to look in the book of Philippians today on those verses we read and, and when we do that we need to ask ourselves what would the people in that culture have determined as success What would those people have said, those are winners, those are heroes, those are people who've achieved a godlike status? The people in Philippi would have immediately thought of two characters, one from about 350 years before that, Alexander the Great. He took over his father's kingdom at 20 years old. And and granted, he had a pretty successful army at that time, and he'd been a general. But between the ages of 20 and when he died at 33, he had expanded this empire. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen. 
This guy knew how to exploit every weakness of his enemy and use every available advantage to, to win. Um, he is considered one of history's most successful commanders. And by his own suggestion, he is regarded as a god. <laughs> True. Second person the people of Philippi would have thought of if, the, if someone was writing to them about winners and heroes and people who've achieved a godlike status, Caesar Augustus. You might know Caesar Augustus from the Luke 2 story of Jesus being born, and there Caesar Augustus decreed a census to be taken so he could raise taxes. Okay, well, Caesar Augustus wasn't a Caesar, and his name wasn't Augustus many years before that. It was Octavian, also a cool name, and he was a commander in the Roman Republic where they have senators, where it's a democracy. Except in that democracy, civil wars are breaking out, and so they're sending commanders and generals all over the place to kind of squelch the the civil wars. And, And at one point, he sent Octavian and two other guys to go squelch these revolting, um, dissenting generals over here. And there was this big battle just southwest of Philippi and stopped them. And those three generals kind of teamed up for a while. And they started squelching out civil wars until it was relatively peaceful. Except generals, these guys, and Octavian especially, had a selfish ambition that they just didn't want to rule together They wanted to rule alone. And so they turned on each other and they started fighting each other and then Octavian took one out and then he took the other one out and now he's the sole general of the Roman Republic except that wasn't enough. He had exploited every weakness of his enemies and even his allies turned enemies and every advantage to win and his win was to become Caesar, to become the ruler, except he didn't just want it to be a republic. He wanted to have all the power over those senators and it became an empire. If you're a Star Wars fan, like the whole saga is actually kind of loosely based on what happened to Rome. Now you can go back and read it, but, or watch it. But the point is, um, once he was emperor of not just, not this republic, but this empire, at his death, he was given the name, not Octavian, but Augustus. And Augustus means exalted one. And the, the, the senators declared that he is now a god and should be worshipped by the Romans. Now, why go through lots of history and current events when we should be looking at just the word of God? This is what culture, ancient, modern, and I think future, will always think of as heroes, winners, and people who've achieved a godlike status. People who've exploited every weakness of their enemies and used every available advantage to become successful. That's what we hold up. That's what we want to be. And that, the problem is, it totally and absolutely contradicts the very biblical picture of who God is. In the story of God, he calls a group of people to be his. They're called Israel. And Israel was to be a servant people. They were to look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
They were not only to look at the interests of getting this land, this promised land that they would inherit, but they were to also show the nations around them what it meant to be in special relationship with God. Except they didn't do that. They didn't consider those other nations. They didn't take time to show those other nations. In fact, in most cases, they used their special relationship with God as an advantage over the other nations. They wanted to claim their right as God's people for their own sake and for their own power. And that's what's happening in this city in Philippi. And I think it's often what happens in our own lives. God's people, they just wanted to claim any advantage and exploit any of their opponent's weaknesses. And especially when conflict or competition came up, they wanted to go after it. And, and this is, I think, just a truth of what it means to be human. When conflict arises, just think about it in your own life. I mean, we can sing a song like, Hosanna, and yes, declare Jesus, but when conflict and competition come up in our life, when we're worried about our own well-being, when we're worried about our own rights, like we just turn inward and we use every advantage, and we often exploit other opponents' weaknesses to win. And that's what's happening in Philippi. There have been some hardships. There have been some challenges. There's probably been some conflict or disunity because we see that in chapter 4. And so this writer is saying, hey, you people, this church needs to be unified. You're God's people in this city. And the only way you're going to be unified is to think Jesus-like thoughts. And that's where we started last week with the whole Philippians 2, 1 through 5. And we really looked at verses 1, 2, and 5, which talked about the mind of Christ. These verses all link together about the mind of Christ. But then it says in verses 3 and 4, we find the answer to how we put on the mind of Christ. But we've, before, we read, um, before we read it, we need to acknowledge that this just doesn't happen in a coastal city in the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago. This happens in our, our life, doesn't it? When we get into a situation, and it's usually in conflict or competition, we, get, we, we fight for our right. And, and we're kind of taught to. Like I played junior high tennis and middle school tennis or like early senior high tennis, and we're taught to like watch the player and then, oh, he's got a really bad backhand. Always hit it to his backhand, you know? And, oh, you know, get on the side of the ball that's to your advantage to win. And, and we were supposed to exploit that, and I wasn't very good at it because I would like, I was super competitive, but I was also, as you might imagine, if you know me, kind of empathetic. And I'd have compassion, so I'd feel bad that I was winning, but then they'd start to beat me, then they'd exploit it, then I'd be mad that I lost because I was competitive. It's like a recipe for lots of counseling. So anyway, <laughs> we're taught that, and, and to certain things, you know, in, in a tennis match, I guess that's okay. But unfortunately, because of who we are as humans, because we have this problem um, that we'll get to in a moment, uh, in so many other ways where it really does matter, um, and it really is a much bigger deal than just winning a junior high tennis match, um, we cause destruction. 
Why? Why do we seek to use every advantage? Why do we seek to exploit our opponent's weaknesses? I mean, just think about it in your own life. You know better than I do. And God knows better than you do. I mean, is it because you're a type of person who loves to win? Like you always want to come out on top, even if it means other people are going to be bruised and shredded in the meantime. Because you just think, you know what, they'll heal. Is it because um, you, you want to win because you, you just truly can't see past yourself? Or your needs or your wants? I mean, you're still thinking about that looking out for number one book that I mentioned five or seven minutes ago. And going, yeah, I do need to do that. Is it because you think um, that if you give into this thing, whatever this conflict or whatever this competition is in your life, you think if you give in on that one area, that you're going to give in into something else, something bigger, or something more, and you just are scared that you'll you'll start to give up too much? You'll wonder: Is anyone else going to fight for me if I give in? Or, or maybe is it because you have been, honestly, you've been hurt. Or you've lost in the past and it's caused major hurt in your life. And you think if you give in or give up in this particular advantage that you could be hurt again. And so you're trying to protect yourself. Or may, maybe you have an, another reason. And if that's true, just jot it down and, and ask the Spirit of God to speak to you on that. Because it's really important to know why we go after that advantage or exploiting the weakness. Why we do that in conflict. Because, because someone who does that, um, whether it's an interpersonal conflict or whether it's a church conflict or whether you know, it's just any kind of relationship, when we do that, we leave a trail of wounded people, even if we're hurt. Have you ever heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Um, and we leave carnage and wreckage in friendships and in marriages and, and in, in church harmony and, and in office situations, in office unity at work because we're fighting for that right. So this is happening in this city in Philippi. And I think it happens in our own life. So let's read Philippians 2 again and just hear what God might be saying to us today. Verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others or value others better than yourselves, not looking only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I'm going to kind of look carefully at this. Um, first of all, verses 1 through 4, if you're kind of a scholar person or you really, really like to investigate word for word, this is one big, long, conditional sentence in the original language. And it's saying, you know, if you have, um, if there's conflict, you need to be of the same mind, and that mind is of Jesus' mind, and verses 3 and 4 are telling us how to do that. Um, but 
but we get a little stuck with the very first word. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And if you're going to ever study just a couple of verses, it's really important to look in a couple different translations of the Bible uh, because you start to get a sense of how different people have have changed Greek into English. And in this case, um, there is no do in kind of a verb. It, it literally says, like, not according to selfish ambition. Now, now vain conceit is pretty easy. It's, it's empty glory. You think about... If you, if you are a good actor or athlete, you have trophies up on your wall from 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago that, you, that you're like, yeah, those really don't mean anything anymore. That's the kind of empty glory that he's talking about here. But, but selfish ambition, um, he's saying, not do like an action, but don't even think about any thoughts. So don't even think about any thoughts motivated by selfish ambition. Now let's think about selfish ambition because I think that's where it all starts. I mean, selfish ambition, isn't that where disagreements turn into fights? Isn't selfish ambition where conflicts turn into wars? Isn't selfish ambition where friends turn into opponents? Isn't selfish ambition what drove Augustus to like want to rule the whole empire, make it an empire? Isn't selfish ambition really, if we think about it, if you know the whole Bible story, isn't that where it kind of all went wrong? Adam and Eve, in the perfect relationship with God, every moment, nothing wrong, no selfishness, no conflict, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God, and God just said, hey, it's all yours, do whatever you want except this one thing, don't don't eat from that tree, um, and, and they look at the tree, and, and Genesis 3 says that Eve looked at the fruit, and she saw that it was good, and it looked good, and it was good to eat. And, and we can't miss this one. And she wanted to gain the wisdom to be like God. She wanted to grasp and, and he was Adam was there too, so no, guys, we don't get off the hook. Um, they're both there. They wanted to grasp at the advantage of being godlike. And that's where it all went downhill. Selfish ambition is just any attitude that would cause us to want to grasp for our rights like we're God or cause discord or disunity. And I think that's pretty easily transferable to our own lives. I don't think it's just 2,000 years ago in a city called Philippi. And he's not just saying, it's not that you've got to watch out for selfish ambition. He's kind of putting it three steps back. If there was a cliff, there'd be like the warning line, and then there'd be the fence by the warning line. He's like, don't even think any thoughts motivated by selfish ambition. But in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And there's a, there's a verb that we don't really use anymore that, that the original language uses that really just means continuous action, keep going. And so the word, how you could say it is, keep valuing other people above yourselves, like moment by moment, every day dang, that's hard. Like, I wish I could just do it once and it'd be done, right? Like, 
often I've said to my wife, like, well, I loved you a lot yesterday. Can it be my turn? Like, I put you first yesterday. I'd really like to be first today. Um, (laughs) It was a long time ago when we were young and dumb and we thought love was all we needed. Um, We can talk more about that later. Um, We needed Jesus. Uh, Keep valuing others above yourselves, day by day, moment by moment. And this, this word that says keep looking or looking not only to your own interests, the word, um, you know, your, your Bible might say consider others' interests over yourselves. This, this word is, um, is to look intently, uh, kind of like a, a watchman looks for an uh, invaders, kind of like a football coach would look at the weaknesses of the opponent and want to capitalize on it. The idea here is that we are supposed to keep looking for an advantage for the other person. Keep, not just keep valuing someone above ourselves, but keep looking for their, their advantage, for the ways they can win or succeed. Doesn't that whoa, just not seem to make sense? So how can we have the mind of Christ? By thinking of, by not thinking of any thoughts motivated by selfish ambition or quarreling, but day by day, moment by moment, valuing other people above ourselves and by looking out for the interests and advantages of the other above ourselves. Wouldn't it be great if we could just stop there and go, oh, that was, that was nice, that was a good exposition of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. But let's go a little deeper for a few minutes. Why? Why? Why is this right? Why would we do that? Because, you know, if some of you are really, really honest right now, and this is the difference between speaking to adults and just speaking to junior hires, because when, when junior hires aren't paying attention or they don't buy it, they tell you, yeah, right, or they pick their note, or they're just not paying attention. Sorry, not you, you're, you're kind. You have good hygiene. But adults can like be thinking, yeah, right. I'm, I'm watching you, I've got a little smile on my face, my eyes are a little bit like, so you're not sure if I'm glaring at you or I'm thinking and agreeing, but I do not buy that. Seriously, pastor guy, like, That's not how the real world works. I know some of you are thinking it. It sounds kind of Mother Teresa-ish, no offense, but it's not going to work for me in real life. And if you thought that, first of all, I've probably thought it too, and second of all, the people that this guy is writing to thought the same thing. Remember who their icons are, who their heroes are, who their leaders are, who their godlike status people are? Alexander and Augustus. People who never give up their rights, who never consider the rights of the other. These people totally get what you and I might be thinking right now. Their heroes and saviors are people who always exploit the weaknesses of others and always look to take their advantage to get their thing. And this writer is trying to not just say, like, look out for other people. He's trying to give this huge, huge new picture of a hero and a savior and a new picture of God. This isn't just about like you and me getting along. 
This is the very heart of the message of Jesus. That's why he follows it up with these verses, um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have a mindset as Christ Jesus did. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. You catching what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 are trying to say? Not to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's just stop there. Do you see the downward spiral? If we could chart out how these words go, it would be the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to an advantage. He kept giving away his advantage. God's people, these Israel, these people of Israel, they wanted to use their advantage at every moment for the sake of themselves. And Jesus is using his advantage at every moment to give it away for the sake of the world. Every moment, every moment, every moment, every moment, even to the point of death, not just any death, but death in the lowest possible form, viewed as the lowest possible human being, a capital punishment criminal. He could not go any lower. This is the way and the picture of Jesus. And when he couldn't go any lower, then, then God exalts him to the highest place, gives him the name above every name. And that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every mouth confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of you who read your Bible a lot, it's probably really easy to say those phrases and go, that's cool. But if we're in Philippi, and the Caesar is Lord, the next, not Augustus, since he's died now, there's somebody else in charge, it's still the Roman Empire, so the ways of the world are still the same, and everybody says Caesar is Lord, you even have to bow a knee to Caesar. These words all make way more sense to those people. No, no, no. That picture is the fake one this guy is saying. Hey, you have disagreements You have quarrels when life gets challenging and you start fighting for your own rights and you start grasping to take hold of every advantage. You want to exploit every weakness of another person. And you're saying, when when you do that, and I do that too, but when we do that, what we are saying is that Alexander the Great's way is better than the way of Jesus. We are saying that that Bill Gates' way is better than the way of Jesus. We are saying Augustus' way to grasp at every opportunity is the true picture of a hero of God. And this guy, this writer, this Paul dude, is saying, you've got it all messed up. We have it all messed up. That's the fantasy fiction. Augustus, Alexander, Bill Gates, they should be running around in hero spandex for movies. That's the fake way. 
That's the make-believe way. The real way is God finally revealing himself to humanity as a crucified Jewish man who just continues to give up and give up and give up his right and give up his right and give it away for the sake of the world. So the way up is really the way down and that's the way of Jesus. And that's why when, when we get into fights and when we get into quarrels and when we start fighting for our own right, that's why this is a God issue. This isn't just between two people. If you're married and you're fighting with your spouse and you're fighting for your right, it's not just a, a husband and wife thing. It's a God thing. If you have a roommate and you're fighting for your right as a roommate, it's a God thing. You know, if, if there's been a wrong, like someone has legitimately wronged you, um, where there's been abuse, like that's different, okay? The scriptures speak to those issues. This is, this is about us looking at our own attitude, our own mind, because it's all up here. It's all in our head. That's what this series is about. That's what this scripture is about. It's in your head, and we're fighting for a right. And when we do that, we're saying, which way are we going to go? Are we going to go the way of the world, the way of power, the way of advantage? Or are we going to go the way of Jesus, which gives up our rights? It's the self-giving love to the other. So how do we have the mind of Christ? It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment choice. It's the reality that we do it once, and we probably mess up again. We sing, Hosanna, blessed is Jesus, he's exalted, and then the next moment, like, we fight for our right. And we go, you know what? I admit that, I accept that, I give that to you, God, and I'm starting again. Because it's moment by moment. And it's the God who loves us, who's not sitting there with a scoreboard or a card, keeping track and being like, you messed up today. Played golf last week, it was bad. Um, (laughs) Oh yeah, plus two. Plus one. Uh, uh, We're just going to call that one an eight. We're going to snowman that one, because that was a really bad one. God's not keeping track. He's not keeping track. If you're sitting here going, there's no way I can do this. Welcome to the experience of being human. We're not supposed to do it by ourselves. That's why Jesus came as a human being, fully God, giving his self-giving love for us to complete what Israel and what we could not complete so that we could have restoration, so we could have relationships, so we could have salvation with God. And then he would give us the power to do this, to live out this life of of consideration for the other person. So what does it look like in your life? Will we stop and see Jesus as um, who he truly is. 
because it should cause us to bend a knee physically. But more importantly, it should cause us to bend a knee emotionally, mentally, spiritually. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never seen this picture of Jesus, I invite you now, I invite you after we're done with our gathering, there's a little kind of scary little curtain there um, that has nothing behind it. There's no Oz. There's just a couple people that will pray with you. You could say, hey, I've just never, ever acknowledged that Jesus has that much power in the world. And they'll most likely say, okay. Do you want to talk about that? And it'll be a very easy conversation. The hardest part is actually walking over. But you don't have to walk over. You can acknowledge God right now and say, you are the Lord above every Lord. And the way of Alexander and the way of Augustus is not the way I want to live. I want to live the way of Jesus. I want to follow you, which means dying to myself, trusting you, giving up my rights. And then in our relationships, if we have said yes to Jesus, is this something that we do to show consideration for the other? To give away? Because I guarantee you, friends, if, if we did this in, our, in this room, those who are here, if we did this, um, think about what the cities that we live in would see. Think about what our neighbors would see. This isn't a guilt trip, okay? Because this is a hard, hard thing. But if they saw a self-giving love from you and me, I have to believe they would ask questions. I have to believe they would say, you know, you know, people just don't do that. My friend Jason, who's been coming here for like five months, gave away a kidney to his coworker because he overheard a conversation. His coworker was on the phone and and he heard him kind of in distress, and he said, what's going on? And, and he said, um, oh, my wife's really sick, her pancreas is shutting down, and, and her kidneys are failing, and, and she, needs a, she needs a transplant. I just don't know what we're going to do. And he goes, I'll do it. Just like that, I'll do it. The guy was floored. I was floored when he told me the story. I'm like, you just don't open up your body and give something away. He's like, yeah, you do. He was still understanding what a relationship with God meant, but he understood this truth that when someone, when you have and you give away, you're actually living out Jesus. And that's what Jesus does for us. We were separated from God and he gives us life. Not a physical kidney, but a way to him. It should cause us to stand and praise him. It should cause us to confess if we've done something wrong, not out of guilt, not out of pointing a finger, just out of love. So that's what I invite you to do right now, is stand with us and, and see this new picture of God, the one who is above every God. Lord, thank you that you um, give a self-giving love, that you have saved us by giving up your rights and opening a way for us to be restored with God. We thank you for the opportunity. We don't take it and use it to our advantage to say ha-ha to the world, but we, we accept it with joy and an open hand to be generous 
to reach out to another. Say, I have, but I will give away because it has been freely given to me and I freely give to you. God, help us when we get in conflicts and competitions to consider the other, to live your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Your prayer and your challenge that you have peace and you have joy and you have confidence because you have trusted in Jesus. And may you show that. May you, may you even, God invites you and challenges you to say, have that by giving to the other, by showing consideration this week in conflict and in competition to the other to see if God shows up in those situations. And the only way I know how to do that is to not see the person I'm in conflict with, but to see Jesus in them and to let that renew my mind. May your mind be renewed this week for Jesus has won. Enjoy your Sunday.